From the MZ Studios Dallas Virtual Studios in Cyberspace, this is Deconstructing Dallas. Greetings, everyone. It's your co-host, Ryan Trimble, joined once again by a man who may or may not be standing in line to vote. He, of course, Sean Williams. Sean, good day, sir. Good day, Ryan. I am not standing in line. I hope to be getting that done very soon. I was recently chastised via social media for not having the proper voting plan. You better get a plan, Sean. I need to. I realize that I have to create a date and time in order for it to be a plan. So, but I do know where I'm going to vote. I am going to vote at the American Airlines Center. Well, oh wow. Well, there'll be a mob scene because everybody will want your autograph. The co-host of Deconstructing Dallas is out to vote. Go get him. Well, that, I guess I better go early then. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. Speaking of American Airlines Center, uh, been seeing some great buttons. The Dallas Mavericks, of course, had, I think it was 20, 25,000 buttons printed up for the first uh, you know X number of voters. I think it was 20,000. Uh, the, instead of getting the I voted sticker, which here we are, um, we're all enjoying the Pavlov's dog of getting a, a sticker. Now you get a button. I mean, this is like oh, that's a big reason why I wanted to go down. I may be too yeah. late now, but I wanted to get one of those buttons. From the everything I really needed to know I learned in kindergarten school of thought, <laughs> I'm going to vote to get a button. So, well, I'll be excited to see your button, sir. If they have not run out, I am definitely planning to get down there soon. I've seen a number of our um, great citizens of Dallas who have uh, been very excited to show off their buttons. And so yeah, um, there are, I, I want to I be in that number, as they say. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Like, well, I, I, I think the first person I saw with one on their uh, timeline was uh, – Mayor Pro Tem Adam Madrano, who obviously is a huge Mavericks fan anyway. Um, and, and I was like, oh, man, I've got to get in on this. Well, I saw one of my favorite Pony fans, uh, the great Mike Haynes, uh, who was uh, may or may not have been my favorite bartender in college. But he is now at the Stew Pot, and he does a great job for them downtown. But he had his, he had his mask on, and he got his button, and he was fired up. Multiple... Uh, picture social media post, John? Well, there have been a number, number of early voters. I am an early voter. Are you, I can't remember, are you an election day voter? No, no, no. I don't like voting on election day, uh, surprisingly. Um, okay. There's some other folks in our office who are election day voters. They're pure I, election I day voters. Like to, yeah. I always like to get it out of the way for early voting. And uh, we are aren't the only ones who are down for early voting because the numbers are in and they are high. Uh, yes. I, I think you're in the early, but not often category. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Sean's not into the cheating category. I'm yet. trying but, not to be in the often yet category. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's well, I'll tell you what, Sean, you, uh, you are not alone in wanting to go vote record numbers of voters across, especially in the urban counties in Texas, uh, Dallas, of course, being a big one, uh, we broke a record on day one, I believe. If they're not still counting, broke a record on day two of early voting. I guess so. I saw record on day two also. Yeah, so people are, are coming out in droves. Uh, some might say they're crawling over broken glass to vote. 
Um, but we, we shall see what the final numbers end up. You know, we haven't extended another week of early voting. Plus, we've got COVID, so we've got all the mail-in ballots. So, not a lot of it's. It's going to be, uh, you know, in the in the breakdown of all of this after the election, it'll be interesting to see because it's a it's a massive outlier. But fun stats for you, Sean. Are you ready? I'm ready for stats. Harris County on day one, more people voted in Harris County. Of course, where where the city of Houston is, more people voted in Harris County on day one of early vote than voted in the entire state of Georgia. Isn't that amazing? That's amazing. That's lot, man. That's, that, that is a lot of voters. And I, 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 I don't know if that means that, because I, I know over the years, early voting has gained a lot of steam locally. I'm assuming a lot of steam statewide. I don't know if Georgia is just not an early voting state, but that, those are amazing numbers. Yeah, beats me, but man, Houston, you guys are doing it down there, and you know everybody in across Dallas County doing it too. Um, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens. Obviously, most of our listeners, I'm sure, know that there is no more one punch voting. This is where you can go in and vote uh, by hitting one button, Republican or Democrat, and then you can walk out. That has that has gone away. Uh, so you have to go down your ballot, which could create a really interesting scenario for for a lot of the down ballot races as Democrats try to challenge for the state house. Um, we'll see who's the, you're going to like this phrase, Sean. We'll see who the stickiest voters are. Intuitiveness <laughs> of which party's voters will stick with it all the way down the ballot. Well, for, for people who are sticking with it to get into the voting booth, people waiting one hour, two hours, three hours, I'm sure that they're going to get as much time with the ballot as they can would be my guess. And I, I think that, um, while I'm, I'm not sure if people will ca- call it enthusiasm, um, it is stick It is people who are making sure to let their voices be heard, which I definitely applaud. When I was going to, on my morning walk uh, past uh, the Park in the Woods Rec Center, a couple uh, on the first day of early voting, I mean, the line was down the parking lot, into the parking lot, around the building. I mean, we are seeing a lot of people who are, you know, patiently waiting for their time to vote. And um, so can only imagine what that might look like on Election Day. Hopefully people will have gotten their vote out and we'll have a smooth day on Election Day. But I know one thing, people are voting right now. Yeah, it's a great thing to see. And speaking of stick we'd like to thank our listeners for sticking with us as we like to listen to ourselves talk a little bit on the front end. But we do have a great show coming up today, Sean. Yeah, we are very excited to visit with one of our clients of Allen Media. Uh, we're going to be talking with Adam Powell, president and CEO at Communities and Schools of the Dallas region. Adam is a really, really interesting guy who was recently profiled by our friend and most recent guest, Sharon Grigsby, uh, in the Dallas Morning News when she talked about the work that Communities and School is doing in schools is doing uh, r- around mental illness. Uh, with some of our youngest students and mental health of our youngest students. And uh, so I'm excited to have a conversation with Adam about that. Yeah, I've, I've had uh, consciousness of CIS communities and schools since my early, early uh, years with, with Chairman Branch, uh, uh, going to their events, seeing their stuff back in now 15 years ago, Sean. So um, great to see, you know, that, that organization who does such great work, uh, with their now leader who's 
just a little bit over a year into his uh, into his tenure. So excited to jump into this interview. Well, without further ado, let's first head to a break, which I think is a do. But after that ado, we are going to come back and talk with Adam Powell from Communities and Schools. So this is Deconstructing Dallas. Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back, Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. Sean, I'm excited to be joined today by uh, a woman that, that our firm gets to work with uh, quite frequently. Uh, he, of course, Adam Powell, the president and CEO at Communities and Schools Dallas Region. Adam, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, we obviously, uh, you know, I've gotten to know you and folks at our agency have gotten to know you, but uh, for our listeners, tell us a little bit a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and your family story. Yeah, so I, um, I am originally from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, grew up in the house, uh, coincidentally, yeah, with a police officer, given these the current times that we're in. Uh, my father was a state trooper for uh, 26 years, started in 1977 um, in Haleyville, Alabama. And he was actually the first black state trooper uh, in that county, which was Winston County, which is Winston County, Alabama. Uh, my mother uh, was a social worker. Uh, so I was raised in a home that uh, really was was firmly committed to service. Right. How do you serve others? And, and in a sense, that's how we value life. Right. Like in terms of, you know, when your epitaph, uh, you know, what what does the dash mean? Right. Uh, what did you do in the time that you were alive in, in service to others? So. Uh, grew up with that kind of heart. Uh, my father uh, ended up being Governor George Wallace's uh, chief of security in the late 90s uh, and was actually in his uh, uh, room when he passed away, holding his hand uh, because they had developed uh, over the course of years a, a genuine friendship, um, you know, which is just kind of an interesting piece of the story. And, and I say that again, going back just to kind of that idea of service. So then I went off to college in Mississippi at Jackson State, uh, and shortly after that, found myself in Dallas in the uh, in the nonprofit space, and have been been here now for uh, 15 years. I uh, worked with several education nonprofits, and recently, uh, last few years, uh, found myself at Communities and Schools in the Dallas region, uh, where I'm excited to be and incredibly excited about the the mental health work that we're doing. Well, we're also excited about the work that you all are doing and excited that we have an opportunity to work with you and your team. So for our listeners, can you tell uh, folks what Communities and Schools uh, Dallas Region is all about? Talk about what you guys do. Yeah, in a sense, I always say it this way. We, we are really about democratizing the life chances uh, for our students. We work with uh, primarily underserved students that don't have uh, the same opportunities, whether they be academic or otherwise, uh, as, as other students uh, in the region. So what we do is put site coordinators, so uh, full-time bodies uh, on campuses uh, that work with what I call opportunity students. Other folks would call them high risk. I, I refer to them as opportunity students uh, to really help them overcome many of the social impediments to academic success, right? And there's a 
a ton of literature out there. Uh, students that, generally speaking, don't perform well academically. There are generally tons of reasons uh, that's not occurring, many of which are non-academic in nature. Uh, and what we do is really help students uh, mitigate, or in some cases eliminate, uh, those non-academic barriers, which include homelessness, right? If you think of Maslow's kind of hierarchy of needs, that foundational level uh, for so many of our students they don't have, uh, whether it's housing, whether it's food, uh, whether it's mental health support, right? And, and just a litany of things that our students are struggling with that are impediments to academic success. And we really help them bridge those gaps. Now, Adam, Sean and I had the opportunity to uh, interview Sharon Grigsby, our friend, the Metro columnist yes. at the Dallas, yeah, the Dallas Morning mm-hmm. News. Uh, actually, she was our, our most recent uh, guest on the show. And uh, she wrote a, a piece about you recently, and it was t- entitled, As Anxiety and Depression Grow Among Dallas Kids, Meet the Man Fighting on Their Behalf. I, I hope our listeners go go read it. It's a really great piece about you. But I wanted to specifically ask you about the mental health piece of your job. Uh, what are you seeing in our schools and in the students you're serving as far as mental health goes? Yeah, you, you know, on the heels of COVID, uh, you know, one of the things that has really emerged is is kind of this mental health crisis. And I, and I probably shouldn't even frame it that way because it was a crisis long before COVID. And I think COVID just kind of exacerbated right. it. Yeah. Uh, but what we're seeing is students are struggling with anxiety, uh, depression, as you alluded to, uh, trauma. Uh, the list goes on. I mean, we even have, have had several students, students that are struggling with uh, suicidal ideations, right? Um, and, and, you know, for so many kids, you know, one thing we know about mental health is it, it does not discriminate on illness. It does not discriminate. Right. Uh, but the response sometimes can be discriminatory in that if you are a, an affluent student, you know, maybe attending a, a suburban school or maybe in, in a private school, uh, there's just a ton, a, a litany of resources that you have access to that maybe your parents or your guardian or whomever can tap into for you. Uh, but for so many of our students that are struggling with, with some of these mental health challenges, they don't have that opportunity. So we, in a sense, at communities and schools become, again, that bridge uh, for so many of those students. And, and when you think about uh, all the things between COVID, uh, you know, just kind of the, the social unrest in our country, uh, you know, compounded with just kind of being a teenager in these days, right, trying to fit in with your peer group. Uh, it shouldn't come as a surprise to anyone that, you know, this crisis, this mental health crisis, if you will, is upon us. Uh, and it really is incumbent upon us as an organization and really all of us to do our part and helping to mitigate that for these students. Adam, um, you talked about your father, Charles, and his work as the first black state trooper um, out of Haleysville, Alabama. And, and for those folks who do go read the article, they'll they'll get a little bit more of a sense of who George Wallace was if they don't, who Sharon talks about as a hard right segregationist. So mm-hmm. talk about that juxtaposition and what you had to see and what you saw and what that relationship was as your father talked about it to you uh, between he and George Wallace and how has that informed uh, your work and, and, and moving forward? Yeah, you know, I, I think about it in two ways. Uh, you know, the, the first is, you know, you, if you think about anyone, again, to your point, that knows about George Wallace, knows, you know, he was a segregationist, um, and and kind of knows the the his tumultuous, if you will, history. And I think what one of the things that I take from the story is that people can change, right? Hope, right? This idea that uh, if you can take, uh, you know, in a world today that is uh, hyperpolarized, right? I mean, you know, everything these days are either 
you are pro something or you're against it. Like we, we don't live in this world anymore where there's a kind of an in-between. Uh, it, it gives me great hope and belief uh, that systems can change, that people can change. And if you think about the, the, the stories of so many of our students, uh, I think our work uh, embedded in our work is that kind of intrinsic hope that we can take these young people and their families that uh, maybe aren't uh, in the best conditions right now and are maybe struggling financially and with mental health and some of these other things um, and, and really move them from point A to point B and give their children uh, an opportunity to excel, not only academically, but in life. Because at the end of the day, this is really about, you know, the life chances and how do we remove, again, you know, the, the variables that we know impact uh, student success, right? Like zip code and some of these things that should never, ever really, you know, be in question uh, in terms of being an impact. Uh, we know that is not that is not the case. And I think the second thing uh, that I really, you know, kind of took away from that is really, you know, it's just the idea of like policing, right? And if you think about, again, uh, you know, the, the current state, uh, one of the things that is incredibly frustrating to me is kind of the binary nature in which we take this conversation, right, when it comes to policing. Uh, it's either you're, it, it appears to be, you're either pro-Black Lives Matter or you're pro-police, and I don't see those things as being uh, mutually exclusive. Uh, I feel like you can be an advocate of Black Lives Matter and you can say definitively like, hey, you know, black men and black women should not be losing their lives at the hands of police officers, particularly unarmed black men, which we've seen uh, over and over again. But you can also at the same time say, but I am also pro-police. I understand the commitment and the sacrifice uh, that people take and the oath that, that they take to protect and serve and how challenging on a day-to-day basis that is. And I got a chance to see that personally. Uh, my initial kind of interactions with police uh, were probably much more positive uh, than maybe some black men, given the fact that my father was a state trooper. Uh, many of his friends, uh, black and white, uh, Hispanic as well, were, were police officers and they would come by the house. You know, so that that interaction with them really led me to have a strong affinity um, and, and appreciation uh, for police work. I've also been pulled over before <laughs> and asked to get out of my car and stand behind my car for a registration sticker that was out, right? So I also understand, it, you know, the work that needs to be done and just kind of the overall way uh, we as a country see see blackness, right? Um, so I, it's, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition, you know, again, to your point, having uh, lived that life uh, with, with my father uh, and, and, you know, he getting a chance to develop that relationship with George Wallace and then becoming friends later in Wallace's life uh, and, and just kind of the genuine turnaround. I would encourage folks, if you, you know, haven't, to read kind of the George Wallace story. And obviously you'll, you'll read about the, the piece where he was a segregationist, but you know, there was some change there too towards the end. And, and whether it was just a change in rhetoric or a change in heart, you know, we'll never know. Um, but, you know, it was always friendly and, and seemed genuine to my father, even to the point where when he took his last breath, you know, he was the, my father was the person he asked to, to be in the room at that time. This is Deconstruction Dallas. We're talking with Adam Powell, president and CEO at Communities and School of the Dallas region. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what Adam and his site coordinators are seeing on campuses. Uh, and, and just uh, also about the, the, as we talked about a little earlier, the, the times that we're in as it relates to race, diversity and inclusion. So uh, we'll be right back after this. Sean Williams, Ryan Trimble, Deconstructing Dallas. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. We are deep in conversation with the president and CEO of Communities and Schools of the Dallas region. He, of course, Adam Powell. Uh, Adam, we were talking about communities and schools and y'all's vision and how you really dig in and get into you know trying to help these kiddos in our schools. One of the ways that I think is so unique and so critical is that CIS has site coordinators working on school campuses. You, they're building meaningful relationships with the students, be, being that support uh, for these students. It's really critical to your work. Uh, what I wanted to know was, how has COVID impacted this piece of uh, y- your business in your youth outreach? And how have you all shifted over the past seven months? And what changes are here to stay? Yeah, you know, over the last several years, we, we had already started to see kind of an uptick uh, in, in mental health challenges with our students. And I think uh, COVID has done a, a couple of things. I think one is it's really exacerbated that uh, because now, you know, you think of some of these students, the only meal they got right during the course of a day was at school. Right. You got, you know, uh, students that were already struggling with. Uh, you know, their peer relationships, among several other things, but those kids are now isolated, right? Um, so what's starting to happen is we're starting to see mental health challenges uh, grow at an exponential rate, right? We're to the point now where nearly half, 47% is the number, uh, but nearly half of the students that we served last year have identified as having some kind of mental health challenge, right? And that includes anxiety, depression, uh, trauma, uh, I mean, you name it, uh, suicidal ideations. Uh, and again, that is all on the heels of COVID, and that's been, you know, one of the the, the major impacts uh, that we we've, we've certainly seen over the last uh, six or seven months. I think the other thing that you're starting to see is the lack of basic uh, resources uh, for so many students. You're dealing with parents now, right, that have lost their jobs, right, because they've been, you know, either furloughed or laid off or whatever the case may have been through COVID. And then the question becomes, well, how are we going to pay rent this month, right, or or you know, how are we going to you know, where's the next meal going to come from? And that, kind of going back to what I alluded to earlier, uh, you know, the, the basic needs portion is a big part of what CIS uh, Dallas Region does. It's really about making sure, again, I go back to kind of that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If those foundational elements aren't being uh, met and fulfilled, the likelihood that any student is able to actualize his or her full potential is, is nil, right? Uh, so on so many levels, what COVID has done is really starting to put back into question uh, just some of these access to some of these basic resources like food and health care and some of these things. So what we really start to do is access our community of partners uh, to really bring them into the table. I, I like to consider our site coordinators as quarterbacks. Right. And what the quarterback's job is, is to know every student on the campus, uh, every student that we're serving and, and know specifically what their situation is, what their uh, what their family situation looks like. And then figure out, put together a plan, if you will. Uh, to be able to tap into resources and, and really be able to mitigate uh, some of those challenges. So it's their job to know all of the challenges that are going on with a, with a student, to know who the folks are we can reach out to. Is it the food bank? Uh, is it an organization like the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute? Is it some of these folks, right? What are some of the things we can tap into and really do, um, you know, to really help uh, change or alter uh, the trajectory of these young people's uh, academic careers? Adam, you're into your second year now at CIS. Time flies when you're working hard. Um, but we're interested in knowing a little bit more about your plans, how you see the future uh, going to CIS and, and what it is that you want to do. 
Yep. So, I, you know, the, the UDS flyby, I think, uh, I, you know, I don't even think I realized it until like two weeks after I hit the year mark, uh, which, which I guess is a testament to, you know, me kind of having my head down and, and just kind of working. Uh, but I think the biggest thing for us and where I would love to see us be organizationally is I don't want to see any student struggle academically because his or hers mental health and basic needs aren't being met, period. Uh, this year, we're going to serve over 8,000 students. Um, so that's, again, a, a grandiose uh, kind of kind of task, if you will. Uh, but at the end of the day, like no student should struggle academically for those reasons. And and in the the world's greatest democracy, right, uh, it is uh, it, it's really appalling in some respects. If you think about the way low income students of color um, are being treated uh, in, in terms of just, again, lack of basic resources, a lack of mental health opportunities, a lack of just academic opportunities and it's our job as an organization to remove all of those impediments and at that point if a student uh fails or succeeds because we believe they all have the the ability obviously to succeed but it should be based on their intrinsic abilities and the effort that they put forth and it should not be based on whether or not his or her uh you know parent was able to sustain them during COVID, whether or not they had you know healthy uh, meals in the morning. It should not be based on whether or not their anxiety was properly treated. It should not be based on any of those things. And if we can get to that world where for every student in the Dallas region that is the case, then we will feel like we have actualized our mission. Now, Adam, since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, and we've seen a number of, of incidents that have sparked a lot of conversations around race, um, whether it be Breonna Taylor in Louisville, uh, here in Dallas, Botham John, Tatiana uh, Jefferson in Fort Worth. We've had a lot of conversations around uh, race, equity, uh, social justice. And so I'm just wondering in, in your work, uh, have you seen a difference uh, in either the way people are talking about race uh, in the work that you all do? And, and do you see an impact as it relates to race and social justice in the work that you all do? I think the work that we do is is intimately tied to, to social justice because this is what it's all about, right? Again, I, I use this expression all the time. It's it's about democratizing, in this case, the educational process. Uh, and I think we see it within, you know, policing and in other uh, venues as well, is how do we make these uh, these systems more fair, more equitable to, uh, in this case, young people of color, right? Uh, I think, you know, one of the things that has come out of this is people are now starting to have meaningful substantive conversation about race uh, that is long overdue, conversations that we should have had, you know, generations ago, uh, and we're now starting to have them in a substantive way uh, is one of the the results, if you will, um, of kind of what we've seen on the heels of George Floyd uh, and all the others, unfortunately, uh, that have occurred over the last, you know, several months. Um, I think in our work, we're starting to also hear from students, right? We talk a lot about mental health. And a lot of times we don't want to put those things together. People don't think about policing and mental health as, as, as things that uh, are necessarily necessarily correlate. Uh, but what we're starting to see is there is trauma associated with this, you know, and, and you know, you guys know this as well as anybody. I mean, what, when every time you turn on your computer or you turn on your television and you see a person who looks like you, you know, being killed, shot by a police officer or. Uh, you hear the story, you know, of of a young woman like sleeping in her own home being killed. Uh, that resonates with people. I mean, it resonates with young people, uh, particularly people of color, because you look at those folks and I look at them and I say, that could have been my sister. That could have been my brother. That could have been my father, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and that traumatizes, I think, young people in a way that 
Uh, there's probably not enough dialogue about that. And what we're trying to do at communities and schools is create these safe places in our uh, offices, on our campuses, where students can come and they can talk to their site coordinator and they can have these these conversations and we can really, again, begin to address some of these uh, inequities uh, on the micro level, but also when we think about policy at a macro level uh, to really get uh, us this greatest democracy in the world, right, where we need to be. Well, Adam, I know Sean and I could uh, sit here and talk to you for the rest of the afternoon, but uh, we want to make sure that we let our listeners have a chance to find you and find out more about communities and schools. If if they want to reach out, where can they find you and where can they uh, f- find more info about communities and schools? We are all over. So our website is uh, obviously CISDallas.org. Uh, we're also from there. You can actually see our Twitter, our Facebook. Uh, we're, we're all over social media. I am personally as well. Uh, incredibly active on Facebook. Uh, Adam D. Powell. Uh, I can be found there and look forward to hearing from some of your listeners. Well, we're, we really appreciate the time. We are really excited about working with you. Please let your staff, your team know uh, that we are continuing to think about them. And, you know, we'll catch up with you again soon. Thanks, Ryan and Sean. And I appreciate you guys having me on. And I, I, I have a tremendous respect for the work that you guys are doing. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. This is Deconstructing Dallas. Sean Williams, Ryan Tremble. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back. Deconstructing Dallas, Ryan Trimble, Sean Williams. Sean, awesome to visit with Adam today. He has great vision and uh, is really, dare I say, rolling up his sleeves to get to work uh, for the kids in our schools. So big thanks to Adam. Yeah, we've had a chance to work with Adam some, but I think between the article in the morning news that Sharon Grigsby wrote and the time we spent with Adam on the podcast, I mean, it's great to get kind of an inside look at how someone thinks. He's obviously given a lot of thought to the work that he does. He's given a lot of thought uh, to the problems that he's trying to solve. And, you know, he's had a great foundation that's been laid with his dad as far as informing a lot of the decisions and and ways he's going about his work. So um, I really enjoy that time. And um, I, I hope everybody enjoyed that as much as we did. Absolutely, Sean. Now, I know uh, the previous weekend, we both had uh, enjoyable experiences. You, of course, congratulations. Your Aggies did it, taking down number four, Florida. It was a, a great game for the Aggies. It was very frustrating the first half because it looked like more of the same. It looked like the defense couldn't stop anyone. But I, I have to say, uh, kudos to Kellerman hitting a couple Deep passes, uh, and it was exciting yeah. to see uh, see the Aggies pull out a win. You know, it's it's a, it's just a good time. You know, for for our teams, we're we're in a good spot. I don't, I can't remember a time when both of our teams have been rolling this good for sure. Yeah, no, it's it's amazing. It's amazing. I um, I, it, when Sean says my team, obviously our teams, uh, he refers to the great Southern Methodist University Mustangs who are 4-0 headed into a game at Tulane. Uh, I did see a funny tweet from Liberty, who tagged SMU football and said, hey, SMU, when they won their game last weekend. 
were the first and only 4-0 teams in the nation, the Mighty Liberty Flames, with the, with the Step Brothers high-five gif. It was really funny. So, uh, and yeah. They're still undefeated too, right? Still undefeated. 4-0, headed into Tulane tomorrow night. It's a Friday night game in, in uh, New Orleans. No fans in the stands uh, due to COVID regulations and, and COVID spike down in New Orleans. But uh, we'll see. Hopefully Sonny and the fellas can uh, pull out a win, get to 5-0, and because on the horizon, Sean, Cincinnati coming up. So stay tuned. Yeah, it is a very interesting college football season. Uh, won't go too far down the rabbit hole, but, you know, a lot of folks are having to adjust. Nick Saban uh, and the athletic director of Alabama both just uh, recently diagnosed with COVID-19. And uh, right after the game with a and um, and Florida, Coach Dan Mullen wanted to pack out the stadium in yeah. Florida and the swamp, and they've had to suspend football operations and postpone their game with LSU because of COVID-19 uh, related illnesses with players and staff. So, I mean, I think the main thing that we're trying to hope for is the safety of the students, the safety of the players, and just get in the, the games as they can. But there's no way to try to guess what's going to happen from week to week. Yeah, it's it uh, really just trying to go one and zero each week for sure. So, uh, good luck. Who, who the Aggies have? Uh, are they on a bye week this week? Um, no, I think they play at Mississippi State this week. Okay, so they get to go take on uh, the Pirate Mike Leach. Air so, raid. Air raid. Well, good luck to your Aggies, Sean. And good luck to the Ponies as always. As um, always. And we'll be back uh, probably talking more voting and more elections the next time we come back. But we want to thank Adam Powell for joining us, President and CEO at Communities and Schools of the Dallas Region. Uh, we want to thank our owners here at Allen Media, um, Mary Woodleaf, Jennifer Pascal. Deconstructing Dallas is an Allen Media production. We always want to thank our teammates uh, for their support of this program. We want to thank Samantha Matthews, who's been uh, pulling a little extra duty with us here on Deconstructing Dallas. So we want to thank her for that. Thanks to Michael Zavala and MZ Studios, who are doing all of our technical support on the show. And that's been awesome. Stay tuned. Uh, make sure that you share this podcast with your friends, with your families, with your coworkers. When you're on your Zoom calls, you know, give us a shout out. Give us a holler. Uh, while you're taking a break and you turn your Zoom screen on off and you're on mute, go to our site and leave us a review. You know, give us five stars. Hey, we'll take it. Um, and next time, you know, uh, check us out anywhere where you are listening to your podcast, especially an Apple podcast, especially on Spotify. Uh, but you'll find us on Stitcher and throughout cyberspace. So uh, for Ryan Trimble, this is Sean Williams. Uh, we'll be right back with a new fresh episode coming up really soon. But until then, adios. Adios.